Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today uh, we are here with friend of the show, Craig. Say hi, Craig. Hey. And Craig has his exams in, what, five days? Yep, this Friday. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking um, a little bit about how that feels. And then we're going to kind of get into some of maybe some mock orals questions that Craig might be getting in five days. So I don't know about you, Craig, but I have been uh, feeling incredibly nervous. All like my exams are in three weeks and I can barely sleep when I'm having fun. I just think, well, I could be studying. So I, I feel like I'm doing a little bit better than, than a lot of folks that I've known uh, and how people have described the process. Um, I feel like I've basically given up on prepping better. Um, and so I've just kind of like stopped. I stopped reading books like last week. I'm just copying notes and looking at questions that I've prepared and trying to get as prepared as I can be. But, you know, basically it's like I've given up putting new information in my head. I, I've been reading since January 3rd. It's about three and a half months. Yeah. And I mean, I, there's totally a uh, moment of diminishing returns. Oh yeah, diminishing returns has arrived and left. Yeah. I know, like I'm reading books now and I'm like, I'm reading and I'm like, I know this, I know this, I know this. And I'm like, oh, that is the fact that I don't know from this book. I know this, I know this, I know this. And then when I look through my notes, I, 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 I get grumpy at myself for not including these things that I never would have thought I should pay attention to. Like, nowhere in my notes does it say the population of London. Mm. Like, yeah, that's super important. I should know the population of London. Does not say that anywhere in my notes. Yeah. I'm going to need to get out like a book of historical statistics. See, I think that I think that your field being a little bit more specified than mine changes that a lot because like the field of Latin American history in the United States is just like a lot more generalized. Yeah. Like nobody's going to be, well, actually that's the thing people probably, somebody could ask me like, what was the population of Buenos Aires in 1950? And I should know that. That's true. Well, I mean, the population of London is important, not just because my field is specialized, but because that's a central mechanism of what we're talking about in my, in yeah. my field. Like the argument is that Britain in the 19th and well, the 18th and 19th century is the first modern nation and what makes it modern high population densities that are created through different kinds of agriculture and so the population of london is really important for that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like it's like asking you like about foreign trade in, in in buenos aires yeah 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 that makes sense but we're not going to probably talk about uh, argentina today right we're going to be talking about um some other topics that you might well, that you might—it might be fun to do a mock worlds. With. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so for those of you who potentially might not have been paying attention uh, to to the podcast so far, or or who might be new or whatever, uh, the way that this works is that I have a primary field, which is Latin American history, colonial to modern, and then a series of sort of like secondary concerns, and one of those is nationalism, fascism, the political right in the twentieth century, and so that's the sort of list that we're going to be pulling from today yeah uh great so let's let's start this and cool. we're going to try to be doing this as much as we can as if it were an actual orals exchange yeah so yeah. the really weird thing about all this is that as you know this preparation period takes a long time 
and it's really painful. And the actual exam lasts only for about 30 minutes, 20 minutes for each uh, examiner, actually. So this is hopefully going to go real quick. Yep. Um, so we're going to start off. Uh, Craig, before we do that, can you just tell us a little overview about these about this list mm -hmm. we're talking about this combination of fascism catholicism and nationalism can you, can you just give us a brief overview about why this is a quarter of the things that you're being examined on yeah so i in my studies i focus on uh, a particularly virulent right-wing catholic politics in latin america and so this part of the list is part survey of the radical right and specifically the fascist right throughout European and to a lesser extent world history. Um, part theorizations of the place of nationalism in the development of modern statehood uh, and modern society and part uh, and this is the definitely the least the least developed part of it um, talking about the place of the Catholic Church in the 20th century uh, and that focusing specifically on the Second Vatican Council. Uh, which take, took place in the early 60s. Okay. So as you can see here, like uh, all of these lists that we all have when we come into this are in some ways this combination of our personal interests, what our advisor is interested in, and what we think we should do. And then what is really hard to actually make obvious when you're coming into the exam, what we actually realized is important after reading. And before we jump yeah. into this, I just want to ask Craig, like, there's a ton of stuff that I learned about my topic that I would change completely. Mm -hmm. So is there anything mm -hmm. that you learned, like, from doing this that you would have changed? I can give you an example of some stuff from my work. Um, yeah, you mean like like things that you would have wanted to have read about or wanted to have changed about your lists? Or... Yeah, or even just like things about, like for example, if you would ask me a year ago and say, Brendan, when did the Industrial Revolution happen? I would say 1770. And that affected the books on my list because I did a lot of stuff about mm -hmm, mm -hmm. early modern Industrial Revolution. But now reading about it, I actually think that all of the stuff that argues for an earlier Industrial Revolution is kind of mistaken and what mm -hmm, really matters mm -hmm. is this uh, later yeah, yeah, yeah. industrial revolution about infrastructure and about ironworks and if i could redo it all again i would i would do stuff about that and and take yeah so there's a lot of yeah, stuff that yeah. i learned from doing all this reading that i would redo yeah okay yeah there are some things that i would probably change um my list is i think now i realize overly focused on uh proper fascism as yeah. opposed as opposed to the political right in a more general sense yeah and so i would refocus it in that direction there would be a lot more about um organizations like action francois mm -hmm. uh, which is from the late 19th century and sort of prefigures a lot of these extreme far-right uh political movements and uh ideologies um before the emergence of the proper fascist party in italy yeah um i would also probably want to include more on this list about uh right-wing politics in latin america because right now it's mostly focused on europe yeah um this list was supposed to sort of give like a broader historiographic perspective uh that i thought would be useful writing my dissertation or you know just as a scholar and i think that you know sort of along the lines of what you what what you're talking about it seems like what you're saying is that in your reading 
you figured out what you as a scholar believe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and 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 I feel the same way. I feel like uh, the Europe. I feel like my list was overly privileging the European story, and I would want to change that. Okay. Well, let's let's get dug in though. Let, mm-hmm. Let's start to I, I, yeah. let's let's draw the curtain and then lift it up again and imagine that I am one of the five eminent professors who will be on Craig's examining board in five days. And if you okay, heard that cool, sigh, cool. if that sigh showed up, that is <laughs> Craig just imagined himself in that room. Actually there. Where instead of me, he saw the very, very, very kind, but also sometimes grumpy professors who will be around the table <laughs> who are just looking at Craig, waiting for him to fuck up so that they can pounce on him. So Craig, I'm, uh, let's, let's we'll raise the curtain again. We're going to start this this list on um, fascism, and I'm going to say, Craig. So this list is about political fascism in the 20th century. What does a study of fascism do to our story of the 20th century? That's interesting. Why does it matter for our big narrative of history? Well, I think that uh, for a lot of lay people, like people who aren't specialists in fascist history or, or the history of Germany or Italy, for example. Um, fascism is sort of black box. It, it, it sort of appears out of nowhere and people think about it as something that's, it's like an aberration. Mm-hmm. Um, there are even some scholars um, who talk about, you know, the, the incommensurability of, of fascist history. Yeah. Uh, who talk about the fact that, you know, who claim that it's impossible to understand or to try to get into the minds or the motivations of fascist peoples and organizations. Um, and I think that the study of fascism, which sort of began in earnest in the 60s, um, is an argument against that. Um, there's a sort of claim of methodological empathy that we need to try as hard as we can to understand these people as people. Great, but still, I, I want to both take a step back and say, take a step forward. Fascism is obviously a very important part of your study, and mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to push you to justify that as how does that make your study of the 20th century different? And mm-hmm. I also want you to start to defend part of what you see as fascism in the 20th century. Yeah, okay. So let's start with the mm-hmm. first part. Mm-hmm. Let's, let, uh, I'll reiterate in my first part. What, makes, what does this lens give you? I'll, 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 I'll reframe this. If I were studying the 20th century and didn't talk about fascism, what would I be missing? Mm-hmm. What is what is fa- mm-hmm. your view of fascism giving to that work that I wouldn't be otherwise? And try to make it as as like give me a narrative, give me a story. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that most of the time historians and and most people, uh, when you talk about the 20th century, I mean sometimes the 20th century is literally bounded by the rise and fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a pitfall that, that historians fall into, um, is that we buy into these sort of like ye olde orthodox leftist frameworks about like the rise and fall of leftist politics or history is a story of attempts and failures at leftist or socialist revolution or, or working class organization or whatever. Um, and that presents the right as pure reaction um, as opposed to a force in and of itself, uh, which is with its own goals, which can be equally revolutionary, no matter how disturbing or awful it is, um, which it is. And I think that a partic- that particularly focusing on the right and putting the right in its own place in the story of the 20th century 
changes our narrative of it. It makes it a little bit less teleological. Yeah. So I'm asking you, what is, you've mentioned the goals, you've mentioned putting the right in its place, you've mentioned how it changes the narrative. I really want to hear what those, how that, how does that change the narrative? And then we can dig into more, 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 more particular stuff. Hmm. So let's put, you're putting, the, you just said, when we put the right back into the study of European history, mm-hmm. it not only changes the periodization, but it changes the focus. So I could ask, what could the periodization be? But I think that's a little bit of a, you know, it's grumpy a wonky, question. That's a wonky question. Yeah. It might be a question you get, but... I might. Yeah, uh, uh, let, you just said that it changes the way that European history is shaped. So give me that shape. Okay. Um, what does it look like differently when we look at it without our Marxist lens of, of teleology? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that, yeah, one of the things that is definitely different, um, and I, I think that it kind of would start with periodization. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that ultimately a lot of stories of modern European history, you know, they either start with the French Revolution or they start with 1848. What, what happens in 1848 uh, eight, for our, uh, eight, our, our eight, listeners? So 1848 is the springtime of people, springtime of nations. Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the rise of uh, revolutionary movements in uh, most continental European societies, or at yeah. least many of the large ones. Um, it's the reorganization of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, well, into the Austro-Hungarian Empire instead of just the Austrian Empire, um, new political organizations in France, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, instead, I guess... Folk putting the right in its place um, would put 20th century European history, it would date it back to, you know, back into the 1870s and 1880s, you know, uh, the Dreyfus Affair, things like that, about like the consolidation of conservative nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it allows us to understand uh, the political forces that have controlled Europe since the Second World War. Um, it allows us to understand Christian democracy, um, Christian democracy as being connected to these older histories of conservative political mobilization uh, in the late 19th century, um, as the Catholic Church and as the Catholic majorities of many European countries, especially France and parts of Germany uh, and Austria and Italy and Spain, um, become more politically mobilized. So one of the ways that you frame this is the rise of the right wing in mm-hmm. the 19th and 20th century. Yeah. And what was really surprising to me from that story is that you framed it from, what, what 1870? Yeah, the 1870s and 1890s. So if you told a, a, a naive person that the story of fascism, this seemingly conservative ideology, started, what, 70 years after liberalism? They would mm-hmm. be surprised. So, can you justify this late arrival of fascism? So, I would. It seems to be an ideology that looks back rather than forward. So, how is it more modern than? Okay. Liberalism? Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that's something that I would definitely argue against. Fascism is not a conservative ideology. Okay. Um, fascism is a revolutionary ideology of yeah. the right. Um, conservatism itself is not backwards looking in a in a in a proper sense. I would say uh, conservatism as we know it today, is a thoroughly modern ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, its background is in anti-enlightenment philosophy. It's in anti-philosophs uh, from the late 18th century. Uh, and these are people who are deeply embedded in the story of modernity, uh, just as much as the proponents of the Enlightenment are. Um, 
conservatism as as opposition to the Enlightenment, you know, it, it, it didn't exist before people started making the kinds of ideological claims of the Enlightenment. And so I, I, I would say that conservatism as political ideology, yeah, doesn't exist until the 19th century. And especially conservatism and the right in general as political mobilization, of course that's not pre-modern because because political mobilization is a modern phenomenon but let's talk about fascism fascism yeah. this this is the the topic that we got to return to what yeah. makes i can buy that but what makes i could also argue about a traditional hierarchical conservatism that 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 is ancient regime but i'm not gonna mm-hmm. what makes this an 1870 a modern story i'll reframe that why is fascism for you a study of modernity? What about modernity makes fascism come online? So the difference, the thing that makes fascism decidedly modern, I would say that there are two big things. Um, one is that fascism is a political mobilization. It's a mobilization of the masses. Um, the political mobilization of the masses as the constituents of politics, I, I would say, is a modern story. Um, that is not pre-French Revolution, really. Yeah. Um, the second thing would be that fascism is a revolutionary ideology. Um, it is about the creation of a new world and new, and they, they say men, they don't say people, and, and new men for that world. That is a revolutionary modern ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not about, no matter how much they talk about the Middle Ages, uh, which they do all the time, um, they are talking about creating a new man for a new world. Uh, and that's modern. That's modern through and through. So what does this ideology... One of the things that, that, that you might take from my research mm-hmm. is that I don't believe ideas matter. Which mm-hmm. might be true, frankly. When you look at all the podcasts I do, when you look at the stuff I read, when you look at the stuff I care about, I don't think ideas matter. There's not a lot... What matters in my view of the world is a feedback loop between people and things and systems. Ideas are either an epiphenomenon or like a minor input into that. Mm-hmm. So this whole list is about a different sub, a different claim on history. Oh yeah, I would disagree That ideas that matter. Yeah, yeah. So tell me why this idea matters. Why is... This seems to be a contingent development where we get a particular kind of formation of ideas that then change the way that history happens. And I'm still wait. I want you to tell me that story. Okay. Um, I mean, the story typically goes like this. Um, I want you to tell me yours. Don't tell me, don't tell me this. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean like, like in all of the cases in which it okay. occurs. Yes, um, great. And, and so this is something that you see in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries throughout history. Um, and usually it follows this similar pattern. Uh, a series, a group of disaffected elite or peripheral elite young men, yeah. um, hyper-educated, perhaps overly educated, um, find themselves in a political and economic system in which they will not be enjoying the superiority that their parents did. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of times these people spend some time... Uh, you know, dabbling in leftist ideology, but then they become disaffected with it and decide that the world needs to be remade, uh, usually according to uh, a violent logic of um, cleansing, cleanliness, purity, um, a return to some sort of er essence, 
of national organization. Uh, they talk about the organic. Uh, they talk about um, yeah. They talk about purity. They talk about natural hierarchies. They talk about you know things like this. And yeah, I would say that the nature of their ideological claims matters because they frame how the organizations that these people build and these people that I'm talking about are fascists. Uh, we're from the alt right to Action Francois. Like mm -hmm. that's what these people say. Um, and that determines how the radical right behaves. Uh, they talk about internal cleansing, internal enemies, uh, internal purity. Uh, this is where their logics of both racial and partisan violence come from. Um, this is where like the, the kinds of people who they want to be members of their organization are determined by. Yeah. And of course, in, in every case, the, peop you know, the nation that they're talking about, the purity that they want, is very different. In some cases, it's more partisan than ethnic. In some cases, it's more ethnic than partisan. Um, so, for example, perhaps uh, you might uh, Portugal is an example where uh, there wasn't a lot of ethnic rhetoric. Uh, it was about partisanship. It was about cleansing yeah. the country of the left. In Germany, obviously, it was an extremely ethnic understanding of what purity and what naturalness and what the nation would be. Um, but, th yeah, this would be a situation in which I would say absolutely their ideas, their ideology, their rhetoric is what determined what they did. So you've discussed the rise of this. What does it have to do with modernity? Why is this a particularly modern ideology? You've talked about the mass nature of it, that mm -hmm. it's happening on mm -hmm. a mass politics level. Is that it? Is it just the, cre the, the presence of mass media? Or is there something more to it? Or am I missing the point in hitching fascism up to modernity? No, I think, that, I think that you're right to, to connect fascism and modernity. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that the study of fascism can tell us, uh, which just reading them cannot. Um, yeah. Because fascists usually present, them at, present themselves as being like anti-modern or anti-enlightenment or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but what they want to do is, they, when, when they talk about the world that they want to make, it's a modern world. It has... It has modern technologies it's organized along logics that i would describe as capitalist even though they wouldn't yeah um it's industrial it is mass it's about creating a it's about we have a blueprint for a new society and we need to build new people to live in that society and i would say that that's a modern story yeah. that 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 is not a pre-modern story is there is there are there institutions or processes that make that modern or is it rather the like i, I the ideal of what should be made as modern what i'm saying is the preconditions or the desire is what's modern about mm, um because i'm 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 all about the preconditions like i very rarely look at the intentions yeah, yeah, yeah. of the people i'm talking about mm -hmm. i'm looking at what 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 they're allowed to do mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. what matters for what matters to you more about this when you're wrapping it into the bigger story of modernity i definitely th I, I definitely focus more on ideas than you do um yeah. and and that's i know you yeah yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah 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 and um most people do yeah and and that's that's because of the international nature of what i study i would say yeah um because the reason that i care about what europeans say is that i study people who read those guys yeah. Um, and who get really excited about all of these things that they're saying about yeah. creating a new world with new men yeah. uh, and the kind of new world that they want to make. Um, 
So I would say that uh, that's one of the reasons that their ideology matters. But yeah, I mean, the organizational capacity that modern technology and by technology, I, you know, I don't just mean like the radio. I mean, like systems of organizing. I mean, um, like youth core. I mean, yeah. civil society. I mean, oh, af- yeah. I mean, athletics clubs. Yeah. I mean, Boy Scouts. I mean, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, those are modern and they are inherent to the project of fascism. Yeah. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. We spent about 15 minutes talking about this, which mm-hmm. is about 75% of an orals meeting. And that's, this is one third of what your list is. Yeah. Um, so I want to just try to wrap up this discussion of fascism with the... Well, you can decide. You have a bigger topic and a smaller topic. Mm-hmm. The bigger topic is the topic of nationalism, and the smaller topic is about Catholicism. Which one do you want to drill into? Probably I would be helped the most by talking about nationalism. Okay. Well, so I've been trying to push you to make, to fold the story of fascism into the story of 20th century. Mm -hmm. Give me your undergrad pitch for the story of nationalism in the 20th century. What is that? One of the things that I've noticed when people teach nationalism is that they assume that the people they're teaching know what they're already talking about. And when mm-hmm. undergrads yeah. listen to yeah. nationalism, they don't they don't know the process that we're talking about. It's actually kind of obscure. So tell me what that is, and then tell me your story about it. Well, the first thing that I would do would be to say that we need to disaggregate the understanding or acknowledgement or belief in the existence of nations um, mm-hmm. from the ideology of nationalism. People believed in, talked about, said nation um, before the existence of what I would call modern nationalism. Yeah. Um, nationhood, nationness, nationality, that's a pre-modern thing. Nationalism is a political claim about modern states. Yeah. Uh, domestically and internally. D- domestically and internationally, excuse me. Um, and it's the claim ultimately that each nation deserves its own state and it's about states producing nations and or nations producing states uh, and different states get produced in different ways different nations get produced in different ways uh, and that story determines i think I, I think it tells us things about the histories of those respective groups uh, so for example um most latin american nationalities uh, are produced ones um i would say that there weren't quote Argentines um, before the 19th century, um, whereas there were Englishmen before the existence of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Well, okay, let's drill into this a little bit more. What's the difference between state and nation here? Because I think that this is where undergrads miss the point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, it seems to, like, that's a hard division to make in your head between state and nation i describe yeah, it in yeah. one way i i have i have my canned answer for that but what's mm-hmm. your canned answer for this so i would say that a state is a particular kind of organization of people yeah. um, a state is a way for certain people to control other people within a given territory mm-hmm. um, a nation however is a sense of identity a sense of community a sense of belonging um, a sense of commensurability understanding um, and 
in the modern world and you know is sort of in sort of like our normative minds we imagine that nations and states should are supposed to ought to ideally would map onto each other very neatly um and a lot of the problems of the 19th and 20th century come when we are confronted with the disjunct between those. Okay, give me an example of that. Uh, so the clear, the perfect example would be Judaism. Uh, Judaism, okay. a nation without a state. Yeah. Um, another clear example would be Germans. Um, Germans, a nation without a state at first, but then when they get a state, most Germans aren't in it. And so the process of uh, German... Uh, German war in Eastern Europe has a lot to do with trying to incorporate territories in which there are German nationals, but in which the German state doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and it's, okay, so I'm having a little bit of... I understand both elements of what you're talking about, but I'm having a little bit of struggle connecting them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have this story of fascism, which is this particular kind of ideology that uses uh, really apt metaphors of cleansing purity and pollution to mobilize new forms of modern mass politics yeah and then we have on the other hand this kind of nascent and seemingly necessary discussion about nations right yes how do they connect Mm -hmm. is there a connection is nationalism you know drinking the same hooch as fascism is or is there mutual mm. rise something that is uh, merely contingent? Is fascism the dark side of nationalism? Is has mm-hmm, modern mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. what are the what's the what's the historical relationship between these two large themes? It it doesn't. I don't. I can't imagine a fascism without nationalism. That's true. Yeah. I can imagine nationalism without fascism. Yeah. Um, would be I think that. The, the, the most baseline answer to that question. Um, in terms of whether nationalism inherently opens the doors to fascism, um, I would say no. Uh, I would say that, that, that it's not a two-part story. Uh, there, there's a third part, the state. Yeah. Um, fascism is not just a... Fascism is not just an ideology. It's an ideology about the state. It's an attempt to take control of the state in the interests of a nation. Yeah. Um, without the state, there would be no locus of conflict. Um, and so I would, yeah, that that would be my answer. But the state, the state's there for a long time without the nation, without fascism, right? Like my my folks in the 17th century, 16th century, have very strong states. Well, Britain's the outlier there. Yeah, but, but I mean, Britain's the outlier for a lot of weird reasons that we, there's a lot of stately formations. China has a, a very strong state and perhaps even cultural nationalism, nationalism without something that we can describe as fascism. Yeah. I don't know if you describe yeah. the Kuomintang as fascist. I would not, no. no so, I, I mean, then it'd be hard pressed to find a fascist movement there and they're the biggest state. In world history right yeah and the most yeah. stable state mm-hmm. so uh, yeah is this something European is it is it is it a contingent trick mm-hmm. of ideology mm-hmm. is it cultural I have not 
I have not encountered a movement that I think deserves the name of fascism outside of the Western world, no. Yeah. Um, I include Latin America in the Western world. So there's no... Uh, uh, what would you think of Turkish uh, uh, autocratic developments? What do you think of, of Ataturk? Um, Ataturk, no, Ataturk is not a fascist. Ataturk's not a fascist. Why is, okay. I won't push you on that because yeah. you, you didn't study Ataturk. Yeah. Um, I think that one of, the, one of the things missing from the, from the discussion of fascism that we've been talking about is uh, the particular use to which they put their political organization. Um, Great. They use it to take control of the state in the interest of the nation. Yeah. Um, how do they do so? Uh, they use both legal and extra-legal means. Yeah. Um, which is something that is found primarily on what we would consider to be the extreme left and extreme right of the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, fascism is particular in that rather than using its political violence against the state yeah. in a way that the left does, it uses its political violence against its partisan enemies against the left. Okay. Um, that is a particular identifier of fascism that differentiates it from political conservatism, from the left, from the center, from normal uh, lowercase l liberalism. That is very different. Well, we've been far more than 20 minutes, so, so we're going to wrap up. Thanks very much for talking to us, Craig. Well, thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. Do all those things that you like to do for things that are on the internet. Thanks very much, and I'll speak to you guys tomorrow.